Welcome to the How to Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today I'm so excited because we get to talk to Tom Venuto again about his experience on the PCT or the Pacific Crest Trail and this incredible journey that he's had and will continue and all these amazing things. So welcome, Tom. Thanks for having me again. Well, you know, I have had so many people inquire about, hey, Lori, I thought you were going to actually um, invite Tom back on and see what happened. We wanted, you know, we saw the stories and the pictures on Instagram, which were fascinating, but really get into the depth of your training, how did it work, any stories, adventures, what you thought was went well, what you could have done differently, because it's all fascinating because we all kind of want to live vicariously until we have the courage to do what you've done. So when you started out, tell us kind of, we kind of talked about prep work before and the training. Mm-hmm. How did that start? How did you start out? Was it just exhilarating in the beginning? What, what was your, and where did you start? And tell us how that all went. Well, I flew from Newark, New Jersey, near New York City, out to San Diego and stayed a couple nights there. Never been to San Diego before. It's beautiful. And then a friend of mine that I met online who had hiked the PCT years ago offered to get me a ride to the uh, southern terminus of the trail, which is great because it's not exactly easy to get to. I mean, you can Uber or get a, a cab, which is expensive, or there are trail angels. You can actually stay over at their house overnight with like 20 other hikers and hop in a van and just go with the crowd. Um, But my friend drove me to the border. It's near Campo, California at the border of Mexico. And how was it starting there? Just surreal. It's just surreal is the only word I can think of to describe the experience. It's like, wow, I'm actually doing this. I'm here. Yeah, I couldn't believe I, I was doing it. And, you know, we took the, you know, the obligatory border monument pictures and it was really cool. It was a beautiful day, perfect weather, very cool so really good, really good hiking weather. And the sun, sun was rising and just casting these long shadows across the, the desert. It was just really, really cool. And then uh, my friend, Tony, he drove off, headed home, and I was just standing there. And there was <laughs> the dude just start hiking. It's only 2,600 miles to go, right? <laughs> so, okay, this is incredible. So, I mean, I work from home doing what I do, but then I know you're alone, but then you see people and you're sleeping in your bed. But now you're like, this is you and nature, like you're walking. Tell us what is in your backpack. Just kind of reiterate, if you wouldn't mind, what you're carrying and the weight of that, if you wouldn't kind of give us Sure, idea. yeah. Well, pack weight is kind of a big deal with through hikers because everybody wants to get their pack lighter. At least the smart people do, or the informed people do, because the, the heavier your pack, the harder it is. It's just so much harder in every possible way. And the lighter you pack, the more mileage you can get to if you want to do a lot of mileage. So we put all our stuff into a spreadsheet and calculate base weight. And on my initial training hikes, I was around 18, 19 pounds. And I was hiking out on the East Coast on the Appalachian Trail just to kind of get used to it, to, to check out how my gear was going. And it was okay, but it, it felt heavy. And that's not counting food. Base weight doesn't count food. So I figured I want to get my base weight down to maybe 15, 16 pounds. And you just do that by swapping out gear, you know, weird, th- weird um, neurotic things like changing your, your down jacket, which weighs nothing already. You get an even lighter one that weighs, you know, it's like air, it feels like air and you can <laughs> your sleeping bag. The pack itself could weigh a couple pounds and you can get one that weighs, you know, a pound and a half instead. And so you clip some weight off there and then your tent is a big deal. You're, you know, some people, uh, they really want to go ultra lightweight. They get a shelter. They might just have a tarp. And you don't really need shelter from the rain in the Southern California desert. So some people, some people go really, really minimalist there. But I had a, I had a um, freestanding tent, so it had the poles and everything. And that weighed close to three pounds. It was probably my biggest piece of equipment. So I'm um, getting used to that pack takes some getting used to. <laughs> and especially going uphill. And the real big weight is when you 
you go and you get into a town and you resupply all your food for the next stretch, which might be as little as three days, or it might be five, six days, might be seven, possibly eight days in the Sierra. And then you've, you've got a couple pounds of food for each day, depending on how many calories you take in. So then now your weight gets up to like 25, 28, 30 pounds, and it gets heavier when you get up to the Sierra, because then you need more gear. Then you need spikes, or crampons or spikes for foot traction, and you need a, an ice axe, and you may need some other, oh, you need a bear, a bear canister, because that's the law in up in some of those national parks. And there's some interesting bear stories. So with the, so now tell us, because you didn't start out with all the axe and the, you know, the crampons and all that stuff, where did you pick those up along the way? Is there, there's a little outpost? Yeah, there's a place. Yeah, there's, an outpost is a good name for it. Kennedy Meadows is called, and it's, um, it's a real milestone. When people get to Kennedy Meadows, it's like, yes, I'm finished with the desert. And that's mm-hmm. 600 miles in, more than 600, probably 650, 700, somewhere in that range. I mean, you've, you've gone through the whole Southern California desert. You've hiked through the Mojave, through the, through the San Diego backcountry, through the Mojave desert, through 100, 110 degrees. And then finally you arrive and you're at the foothills of the Sierra, that's Kennedy Meadows. So there's no point in hauling all that gear through the desert, stuff you don't need and it's weight you don't need. So you ship it to yourself ahead of time and you pick it up hmm. there at Kennedy Meadows. And that's such a celebration when you get there, you walk up and everybody claps. It's like traditional <laughs> for you when you roll into town. And there's a general store. So I ate the obligatory um, pint of ice cream and, and, uh, <laughs> and it was good after the desert. I imagine. I, I don't even eat uh, dairy, but I might actually be considered if we could just hike <laughs> through the desert. So with your, now tell us, you left in April or May? It was May, no, end of May, May, right? late. That was a late, late start. May. Okay. Very and late then, start. And so you were, you were walking through temperatures of 110? At one point, but we all, when it, when it, when we, there was a heat wave, a very bad heat wave. It was in the national news. The whole Southwest was struck with a heat wave. You know, nearby in Bakersfield, it was worth in Death Valley. He was seeing 125, 130 degrees, 125 degrees, something ridiculous like that, almost record breaking. But right along the PCT, it got over 100 many, many times. Um, one day it was up to 104. I was out in 104. But what you realize is it's, you get dehydrated so quickly and it's just so exhausting. It's not even worth hiking through it. So what everybody did or what we learned by talking to other hikers is to start, just put on a headlamp and start night hiking. Mm. That's how you beat the heat in the, in the worst of the desert. I did hike through a lot of very, very hot days and I did okay as long as I stayed hydrated. But now the water starts adding to the weight. So I'm lugging at least four liters, five liters. And there were some days that I had gone through seven, eight, nine liters in a whole day because it's almost like you can't drink enough. If you're hiking in direct sun exposure, uphill, carrying the pack, the way I, I felt is I couldn't, I couldn't drink enough. It's just, there's, there was no, almost no amount of hydration. So then I started having to think about, wait a minute, I better be checking my electrolytes here too because I'm taking so much plain water in. And so I started going with more sports drinks and taking electrolytes, putting them in, into the water. So there's a lot to think about with staying hydrated. Right. Because you can, you can, you know, people don't understand that there's stories of people drinking, like, I think there was a radio show and they had some type of contest, someone chugging water very quickly. It was just a gallon of water. But what happens is your sodium drops, you become hyponatremic and brain swelling. People don't understand it's a balance. So you're exactly right. And for good worry, because you write, you lose more electrolytes with sweat and different things. So what did you have any stories there as far as like, what was that part of the the desert that was really stand out? You feel it would be... Well, the, the, the big story is water, finding water. And well, yeah, where do you find water during that time? There's, there's some creeks that have water, and during really dry years, it's worse. So we went through a high 
precipitation. It was a high snow year. In fact, it was one of 2017 was one of the highest snow years in history. So the other big story on the trail, aside from finding water in the desert, is getting through the snow in the Sierra, which is a whole other story. But it, one section at a time to get through the desert, you have to you have to find water. And fortunately, a lot of the creeks were flowing. Some were a little bit dry, but when you take maps with you, or if you take a mobile app that has GPS, there are some that are made specifically for the PCT, and it shows where the water is. So you can plan you can plan your water supplies. Like, okay, I have X amount of miles to the next water, and you're, it's always on your mind is where's the next water. Like every goal is the next water supply in the desert. Wow. So okay, so now you're carrying a mobile app. Is that how you did it? Or a yeah, real it's map? right on the iPhone. You just download it. I, so how, I, how did you charge your phone? I took um, uh, an anchor Solid? battery, yeah, ah. which was worth the wait because if that would charge up my phone. If I only used my phone just for navigation and occasional taking pictures, it lasted a long time. It lasted for almost a week. I could oh, get wow. that, I could get that many recharges out of it. Okay, good, huh? Because I guess there is also solar backs, packs, and stuff. Of those I've seen. I saw a lot more. of hikers. I I didn't talk to anybody about whether they liked the solar system, the solar. Um, it, 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 it makes sense for the desert because the sun. Yeah. So you're going through desert, and then you're going to be talking about going through snow and ice. This is such a craziness. Like you're then, it's crazy. It's so such when a contrast. Yeah. <laughs> so now you're walking through because I know, like when I see the Grand Canyon, it is for me that is surreal because it's so large and so vast. And I saw some of your pictures, and you're taking pictures of these amazing mountains. Does it almost feel? I don't know. Does it feel? Is that surrealness start, or do you're like, wow, no, I'm really going up this mountain, and it's hot, and I'm tired, <laughs> thirsty. What am I doing? What it, is going it's a combination. Your mind? It's a combination of both. There's a lot of really difficult points, and and usually it's at the end of the day. You're really, really, really tired. Your feet hurt. You're exhausted. I mean, it's hard to even have energy to read in your tent at night if you want to. Mm. You just get. You just want to crash, and uh, so so that's hard. But the the emotion is that it's all worth it. Because right. the scenery is just so incredible. It's so grand. And, you know, I think there's something in, in a lot of us, most of the people who, who go on this trek, that they want to push themselves a little bit and see what it's like. Let's see how far I can go. And, and that kind of continues as the trail goes on. Okay, let's see if I can get, go a little bit further. I was doing 20 miles a day in the desert. Let's see if I can get up to 25. Or by the time I'm in Northern California, let's see if I can get 30. So you keep, you, you keep pushing yourself. So it's a combination of that challenging yourself physically and just enjoying the amazing scenery it just keeps it keeps you going and a commitment when you start if you're really committed like i'm going to finish or i'm going to do i'm going to do everything i can do if you made that commitment to begin with you'll you'll keep going absolutely so that's another thing to say how does the apps also keep track of your mileage like how far you've walked per day or did you use something different yeah it's easy to track your mileage you you can see mileage on the app and and you're aware of the fact that the trail is two thousand six hundred fifty miles and you know what mile you're at and <laughs> a neat part of that is all the is all the markers on the trail so there's one okay. that's mile hundred everybody takes a selfie at every hundred and there's two hundred and then there's three hundred and then you get to five hundred and everybody's singing the proclaimer song and and it's six hundred up at the uh at Kennedy meadows and there's big milestones you hit. A thousand miles that's really kind of a big deal you know there you're you're just over the sierras and wow. so you know, you're very very aware of your mileage points what is your average mileage that you did daily in the beginning it was about 20 miles uh i started right from right from day one into 20 miles because i had trained before so i knew i was ready for that with the pack on i had trained on the east coast and then the second day i got 20 miles again most days were around 20 miles i occasionally pushed out of 20 
uh, five or so. And that's usually because there was food at the end of that day. <laughs> there, was, there was a town and I was just, I just want to get me get to town. I, I don't want to camp out one more night. I want them to get to the motel and get to the restaurant. And, and that's, that's true. It's amazing what motivates you when you're out there. You, you <laughs> want that, I don't drink soda. I never drink soda, but when I got in town, it was the best sodas or Gatorades that I ever had. In my life. <laughs> Only on the trail. It's just something I, I don't usually drink. So. Yeah. Well, it's funny because, um, you know, I have friends that are ultra marathoners and they run and they're like, it doesn't matter. You just want whatever at the end of, you know, a hundred mile race or whatever. Like, yeah. You guys are, you guys are crazy. <laughs> but we'll get to your 15 miler here in a bit, but in a second. Um, so when you were talking about these towns, so did you, you would sleep in your tent, but there were also towns, right. That you could stay in on occasion. Yeah, exactly. That's how it works. So you're out in the back country, for three, four, five, six days, um, there was my longest stretch was seven days, and for me that was a really long time in the back country. That was in the Sierra. That was a mm-hmm. long, long stretch. And then you're planning in advance for your resupply. So just like when you're in a desert, you're, you're planning inside of a day where's the next water source. You also have to know when your food's going to run out. It's really that's the main part of planning for the PCT. Mm-hmm. And you take just the amount of food you need for the day to get through that, those number of days. And then you go to town, you go to the store, and you resupply uh, all your hiker food. And there's different ways you can do it. It's probably the majority had a stove, and they would cook, so they did have hot food, or at least half the people. But I went stoveless. Just the one less thing to carry, a little bit less weight, a little convenience, and it didn't didn't bother me. What did you eat? What was the food supplies that you did use? Uh, Oatmeal with raisins and protein powder was always my breakfast. And the funny thing is that's what I have every day anyways. So the difference (laughs) is it wasn't. Heat it up. It's just cold. I just add water. Sometimes I didn't have that twice a day. <laughs> and I did rice, which I would rehydrate. So I would get the kind that was pre-cooked. And wow. I, I cleaned out a peanut butter plastic peanut butter jar, and that was my rehydration jar. And so I just put the rice in there, add water, and an hour and a half later, it's rehydrated. And again, it's cold, but it's ready to eat, and it doesn't taste that bad. Right. And I started with brown rice trying to be the, you know, the usual nutrition person I am. I ended up with white rice because it's just a lot more palatable, <laughs> and it rehydrated, it rehydrated better. So then um, tortillas, I'd get whole grain tortillas and I'd smother uh, them with peanut butter. And sometimes I would chop up a, like a chocolate peanut butter, chocolate um, protein bar and Mm. put it, roll it up with a peanut butter and tortilla. That was a staple. And then a lot of bars that I got very, very sick of just bars, bars, (laughs) more bars. The, for a lot of, a lot of hikers, it's just candy bars. I tried really? to get, I, yeah, a lot of, Snickers is the most famous meal on the whole PCT. And I had a few, I can't, uh, sometimes, I did, I admit I bought, bought them a few times, but only a few times. And when, when they were given to me from a trail angel, you just can't refuse. Right. And I have to admit they were, they were pretty good. That's a, that's a staple for most people. But energy wow. bars, protein bars, you know, just nutrition bars. I tried to get some that had a whole, you know, had nuts and oats and, you know, something nutritious. I didn't, right. I didn't eat a, a horrible junk food diet. Most, most people do on the PCT, but I, right. I tried my best. I did eat more what I would call junk than I ever <laughs> have in my whole life. I freely admit. And right. you kind of have to, if you're burning 5,000 calories a day, oh, just, yeah. you know, just to prevent from losing too much weight. And when I got in town, I had to overeat a little bit just to kind of offset the weight loss. Yeah, absolutely. That was, that was pretty typical. So now you also did something else like, <laughs> this cracks me up. It's true trombonudo though. Um, is when you would go into these towns that they had a gym. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you got to tell us why you did this and what was um, what was going through your mind. There's a couple reasons. For one thing, I didn't want to be super super skinny when I got done because if you don't do any resistance training at all, you you're going to downright atrophy. And 
and everybody knows it. People come out the other side of the TCT really skinny, really, really skinny. It's, I mean, it's a conversation people have losing too much weight and you're just eating enough food. And so, I mean, that was one reason. And I've been training my health. I know you can regain it afterwards. And I've, I bumped into a couple of bodybuilders and, uh, who had done the PCT and the Appalachian Trail before. And they said, I, I just let it go. I just stopped lifting. I mean, what are you, how are you supposed to lift when you're hiking 20 miles a day or 25 miles a day? He's like, just muscle memory. It's going to come back. And, and they told the story of how they stopped lifting for four or five months. And then they just started lifting after. And it was fine. Everything was fine. They gained the muscle back. But I didn't want to do that. And I found out, to the best of my knowledge, I'm the only person in the history of through hiking who has lifted weights through the whole BCT. I, I could never find anybody else who's ever done it. And I can, and I can see why now, looking back. It was, it was not easy. It was not easy at all. I did have to uh, compromise my schedule a lot. But normally, I'll lift five days a week, minimum four days a week. Hmm. And I could only lift, obviously, I'm not going to carry a weight set with me in my backpack <laughs> kind of defeat the purpose of being ultra light. Right. Um, but every time I got into town, this, this was the part of the planning that I did for the PCT that nobody else did. They were just planning on where they're going to eat and, and resupply their food and get the water. I was planning where I was going to lift and I had it all mapped out. I know it's crazy, but this is what I've done my whole life. I started lifting when I was 14 years old. And, and this to answer your question is another reason why I decided to keep lifting is I, I have not missed more than two weeks of lifting in 30 years. So I kind of have a streak going. <laughs> I've never taken a prolonged. And in fact, I only did that once. I took two weeks off once on purpose, just as a, a deload, like as a break to see, to let my body recover a little bit. Usually I never take off more than a week of lifting. And it's been like that for 30 years. I'm like, I'm not going to stop my, my streak. I'm at least going to lift once a week. Right. And because I figured that the towns were three to seven days apart, usually it's three to five days apart, four or five days on average, I could find a gym in most of those towns. And, and, I, and I went to the gym. And sometimes it was a walk. Like the very first town we got to was Julian, California. And there's a little, little gym, little tiny little gym up there. It's in the mountains. It's the backcountry mountains in San Diego. And it's Julian Fitness Center. And that was the first place that, that I lifted. And uh, that was after I ate, of course, food <laughs> priorities straight. And in a few occasions, there was no gym in the uh, trail town. Like I got up into the, uh, towards the San Bernardino mountains, up closer to Los Angeles. Oh. And the, the town where most people get off and resupply is Wrightwood. And Wrightwood, as far as I could tell, didn't have a gym, at least not a big one. There might've been a teeny little weight room somewhere, but I couldn't find it. So I took an Uber 34 miles out to Victorville just so I could lift. Wow. I did All that right. a couple, a couple times. I just, <laughs> just 30 miles. Or when I got to, um, uh, near Santa Clarita. The, the trail is about 30 miles from Santa Clarita and it was a gold gym in Santa Clarita. So I could have stayed on the trail and I wouldn't even have had to, to get off and go to the city, but I took a, I just took a ride 30 miles in the city so I could lift. And I did that the whole way up the trail. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that is called dedication or obsession. One of the two. <laughs> yeah, It was an interesting experiment too. I mean, I discovered some interesting well, things. Tell us what you did learn. I mean, really honestly, cause you focus more on upper body. I'm assuming, I'm assuming your lower I, extremities had some. I actually trained my legs, but the leg workouts became less and less and less as the workout went on. So by the time I got 450 miles in that, that workout at Santa Clarita goals gym was the last place I tried to squat. Hmm. I was actually squatting until then. Not a lot of weight. Wait, you, know, you were. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute. You're walking 20 miles or more a day, and you're squatting. I was once or twice a week for the first wow. 450 miles, and then it was just too hard. It oh, was too hard. It was, it was too hard to to do it, just physically exhausting, and I started to get worried about getting injured because. Right. Squatting, Recovery, right? 
Yeah, it's just it's just too it's too much. It doesn't it's, it just stopped making sense. So you know, I switched to a leg press, which is quite a bit easier in leg extension, and I just did a I call it a token leg workout. My upper body workouts were pretty similar to what they usually were. And one of the interesting things I found out is that almost all of this interference between endurance and resistance training is taking place in the lower body. I mean, huh. a lot of people think your whole body is just going to shrivel up if you do endurance. And that's not the case. I mean, I, I maintained most of my upper body size for at least the first six, six or 700 miles of the trail. Wow. And then, you know, after through the Sierra, it was just so grueling and so demanding. And then I really started dropping a lot of body weight, but the there's these misconceptions about endurance athletes and i would and i would lump you know through hikers and endurance athletes kind of two different categories but still you know similar long distance endeavors mm -hmm. there's this there's this mis misconception that if you do it you're you're going to atrophy you're going to shrink but usually the reason you see some endurance athletes and long distance runners so thin is because they don't lift at all there's mm -hmm. no and a lot of a lot of runners do lift and they're muscular i know a lot of them I know a lot of the, the tricky part is the legs is training, training legs and finding out how to balance any kind of leg training with um, any kind of endurance, long distance endurance that involves your lower body. That's really, really, really hard to do. Yeah. I would, I would say anything marathon longer would be difficult for sure. Yeah. Um, half marathon, no big deal for me, but the marathon training is so tedious and long with yeah. running. It's just, uh, yeah, for sure. So as far as, what were you doing um, upper body strength wise? What were you doing? What type of exercises? Same, were you thing always, same thing I always did a combination of compound and isolation. I've mm -hmm. always worked out in the bodybuilder style. That's why the nickname mm -hmm. is Meathead. My Instagram handle was Meathead Hikes. There's a mm -hmm. reason for that. <laughs> but that's the kind of training that I've always loved, loved doing, you know. So it's not like a CrossFit cross training or it's not Olympic lifting. It's not powerlifting. It's not any kind of circuit training. It's, just, it's bodybuilding training. I bench press mm -hmm. and then I'll do flies and the pec deck, you know, two or three exercises, you know, two or three, four sets each, you know, eight to 12 reps. Very standard muscle building training. That's what I like. That's old school. I, yeah, old school. My whole life, I've enjoyed that. And I cool. pretty much kept doing the same thing. And if I did it the same day I did a long hike, if I, if I just got done with 20 or 25 miles and I tried to lift that same day at night, that was really hard even for upper body just because general energy is just so low. So it was hard. Yeah. A lot easier the next day after a night's sleep and, and a big dinner, completely rehydrated, a big breakfast, and go to the gym. That was a lot easier to do. Ah, okay. Gotcha. So... <clears throat> Over the course of your time, so how much weight did you lose by the end of your trek? Well, you know, I, I dropped 10 pounds before I even started the trail. So, it, and it probably helped because I was leaner. It's, you know, a lot of people are so obsessed with their pack weight. I wonder if they think about maybe why don't you drop 10 pounds off your body if, you if it's fat. If it's, right. You know, and I admit I had easily, and I was, I was on the bulk at the end, end of a, a bulk. Bulking phase. <laughs> yeah. So I was carrying a lot of muscle. My strength was way up, but I was carrying some body fat. I don't need this body fat. So mm -hmm. I didn't really change my diet that much. Just all the hiking I did to prep for the PCT, my mm -hmm. weight dropped from 193 down to 183. So that's where I started. I started gotcha. trail at 183. And then I dropped in the first three days, I dropped like five pounds and I'm like, wow, this is not good. Um, what was that? 178 when I got to Julian, hmm. but I figured out it was mostly dehydration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as soon as I rehydrated, I, I would weigh myself every every chance I had, which was usually at the gym. They had a yeah. damn scale. And then the next morning, I, my weight would pop back up. But it was constantly doing that. It was dropping, pop back up, drop, pop. And I would just kind of react or respond to my weight by adjusting my calories, eating more in town. If I had mm -hmm. to haul more food 
with me. I didn't always want to do that because the food is so heavy to carry, right. especially to carry carry the water too. Right. Well, um, plus glycogen, your glucose storage and your muscles, and that retains water too. So you have two right. things. You're losing glycogen and the water and boom. Right. Wow, that's impressive. So, huh. So what did other hikers tell I mean, when you shared your story that you're still doing upper body training, what, what were their responses? <laughs> um, I didn't talk to that many hikers on the trail about lifting, except when I was, was in a trail town and I mentioned, well, I'm going, you know, I'm, they're all going to um, Hiker Heaven, which is near Agua Dolce. It's supposed to be the best, the best uh, trail angel place to stay overnight. On, on, on the whole trail. There's a few places like that, famous trail angel places, just all the hikers stay there. And I said, no, I'm not staying here overnight. I'm going to Santa Clarita. And like, why? Well, I, I got to go lift. And just this blank stare, completely confused. Or are you, are you out of your mind? <laughs> you know, and whatever floats, but it just doesn't, it, it doesn't even compute, honestly. Right. Right. Exactly. It's, it's a, yeah. It's like trying to put the, the square peg in the round hole. Yeah. <clears throat> You're like, wait a minute. I don't think this is <laughs> so that is that is really interesting though because but you were able to do it granted it slowed off you know might have fell off a little bit um did you find that that was helpful though in a sense of reach you know calibrating your mind because you're out that being alone i mean it's one thing to be okay with being alone but i like people i mean how hard was that that would be tough yeah you know what i'm i'm more of an introvert more of a textbook introvert but i I don't like being in complete solitude for a whole week at a time. It's, it's nice. Not, I mean, there, you, you do see a lot of people on the trail. You pass people on the trail, pass a ton of people on the John Muir trail because there were a lot of them coming southbound. A lot of, met a lot of great people, had a lot of interesting conversations because they weren't doing the whole PCT, just the JMT. But you bump into through hikers uh, the whole way along. But I, I do like getting into town and, and being around some civilization. I mean, even, even if it's just, I'm by, I am by myself, but I'm sitting in a, in a Starbucks and there's a whole bunch of people in there. It's just like, there's some civilization. It, it was, it was kind of nice. So, you know, part of me wanted to do the trail for the nature thing and for the solitude, but I, I, I also like, I like this. I like both. I like the solitude and I like to, to be in the city too. Wow. So interesting. So tell us about some of the people that you met. Did you, some of the interesting characters or stories that you've heard? Cause I know you, oh, you shared a boy. few. <laughs> um, wow, so there there were some interesting characters. Um, well, one of the earliest um, people I met was uh, where was I? Wrightwood. I met the couple that was um, through hiking with their dog. Hmm. Their dog. And I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know people were hike uh, um, Suta. They they were from uh, where were they from in Europe? One of these European, northern European countries, and the dog was a alpine dog. Wow. And and I met. And I met them, the three of them, the, two, the couple and their and their and suit of a through hiking dog in, in Wrightwood. And the funny thing about about them is they're one of the few people that I kept bumping into all the way on the whole trail. So I don't I don't think they they made it to Canada. I think they got stopped out by fires too. Mm -hmm. But I know they made it through all of California because I bumped into them. I even bumped into them in the Sierra, with the, huh. and and. I asked them, how did you get your dog across the creeks? How did you, what about those mountain passes? And they said, well, the mountain passes are interesting because um, the dog's claws were like crampons. So they, he, he said, well, he's doing better and going across the snow than we are. <laughs> the creeks were really, really dangerous because they were swollen from all the snow melt. So on, on some of them, he carried the dog, but I'm, I, I'm still at a loss for how he actually did it because 
doing it with, without, you know, with both your hands occupied and no balance and no trekking poles, that had to be very, very difficult because the, mm. the, the creeks were so dangerous in places, you know, there were a couple of deaths and people got swept away and they were, they were very, very, very dangerous, but somehow they got through with their dog. Wow. Because you're also a, carrying food, right? For your dog. Yeah. And water. <laughs> well, he had his own pack. Oh, he had his own pack. Yeah, it's a cute little doggy pack. Okay, that's adorable. So it was. It's just, <laughs> it's just food and water. Then he's carrying his own food and water. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a conversation on the trail about this because how 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 are you doing this? The water in the desert. I mean, it's such a it's it's so so much work just to get enough water for yourself, and you have to you have to get water for your dog too, and the food. Uh, but they they did it, and apparently this dog was was just raised that way out in the mountains so wow that's incredible that was an interesting huh. group <laughs> yeah and what else who other else did you meet oh boy um <laughs> gotta think about it uh well do you know some of the most interesting people were the trail angels they weren't the through hikers they were the trail angels so tell us what a trail angel is before i mean i think we can assume but what is it exactly there's these people these these wonderful nice people who live along the trail corridor sometimes literally on the trail or they're just off the trail 10 miles 5 10 15 20 miles and they know how hard it is to through hike either because they live in the area and so therefore they're part of the culture or a lot of them have hiked the trail before or they just love hiking and they've never through hiked the whole trail, but they've done sections and they appreciate how hard it is. And what they want to do, they want to help hikers or they did it before. They want to pay it forward because someone helped them before. Mm. So, the, I mean, the greatest thing, you're in the middle of the desert. You've hiked 400 miles through the desert. You're, you're getting up to the Mojave. It's 105 degrees and you're just dying of thirst. I mean, you're the, you're the proverbial you know, almost the guys, you know, the picture of the cartoons, the guy who's just kind of crawling out of the desert. like, And around the corner, you think it's a mirage, but there's this van parked on the side of the trail with the, with the back open. And there's all these coolers filled with Coke and Gatorade and watermelon. And you, you just can't even, it's, it's almost hard to describe the feeling, how amazing it is to, to get the drinks and the food, but just the, you know, just the, the kind, the, the kindness of these people and you, you know, wonder why they're doing it. And that actually happened in, in the desert more than once. And sometimes they're there, they're just sitting there and they have, maybe they have an umbrella with some shade and some lounge chairs and you just hang out for a while and, and drink a Coke or a Gatorade. And sometimes you'll, you'll just come across a cooler just sitting there and you open up the cooler and there it is all, all, all the ice cold drinks snickers ice cream snacks and it's right there and and it just you know there'll be a note left by the trail angels of such and such a town or, or whatever it's it and it's really it's really amazing there was one spot up in uh up near mount whitney it was up it's the first climb you come up um out of kennedy meadows and up into the mountains so you're you're now in the south sierra you're up like ten thousand feet and even though you're gaining some elevation, it was hot during the day. It's the summer. I mean, this was this was in the summer. Okay. Um, at that part, it was it was hot. And there is this uh, small group of hikers there who had hauled a gigantic jug of lemonade up to the top of the mountain in their in their pack. The only thing in their pack was this big thing of ice cold lemonade. He's like, "Hey, are you are you through hiking?" And I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "Would you like some nice ice cold lemonade?" I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> And it just happened over and over um, and, and over again. And there's some, sometimes you just meet them on the trail and sometimes there's trail angels who live by the trail and they actually welcome hikers right into their home or into their backyard. Their backyard becomes a campground. Oh, how, you for, know, that would be fun hikers. though. That really would be fun to meet people 
their stories and to just be a part of someone's journey. That's really yeah. cool. And they call it trail magic. So the people, the trail angels, and when you run into this, it's trail magic. That is magic though, right? Because you said it's like a mirage. It just kind of comes up out yeah. of nowhere. It's like I mean, a helping hand out of the ocean yep. of drowning yeah. <laughs> or desert sand, I guess. the Wow. So you're talking about Mount Whitney. Wow. So tell us about what type of elevation gains were you getting in a day? Um, well, it was up in the Sierra that there actually there's elevation gain and loss through the whole trail, you know, whether it's in the desert or up further north and, and you're just getting nickel and diamonds by these small hills over and over and over again, you're still, you still have, you'll have two, 3,000 feet a day up and down. And then when you get to the Sierra, the whole Sierra section is basically, uh, you're in the high Sierra, so you rarely dip below 70. 7,500, 8, feet. I mean, you're up there 8,000 feet pretty much the whole time. Wow. And it and the whole trip through the Sierra consists of going from 7,500, 8,000 feet up to about 11, 12, 13,000, and then back down. And then the next, same thing. It's basically a one pass a day strategy. There's one day there was two passes. Oh so three, 4,000 feet a day and occasionally 5,000. And if you want to do Mount Whitney, it's a side a side trip and it's actually not on the PCT. It's a little bit off the PCT. So you plan an extra day for that seven and a half miles from Crabtree Meadows, which is kind of like base camp on the, um, on the Western side of, of Mount Whitney. And then it's seven and a half miles up, seven, seven and a half miles back down, which by that, that point is not that bad, but the air is pretty thin. It's 14,500 feet. Is, that's the, the highest point in the contiguous United States. So that's a must, a must do for almost every through hiker. So you did the Mount Whitney? Yeah, the second time. Perfect. That was my second time. The first time last year, I went up just on a day hike. I went up from the um, eastern side, from the Owens Valley side. Okay. I stayed overnight at Lone Pine, and I did not acclimate at all. I just drove from... 3,000 feet in Lone Pine up to the portal, Whitney portal, where the trailhead is. That's 8,500 feet. And then I just booked from 8,500 up to the top. And so I had a whopping headache at the top. And yeah. this time, when you hike the PCT, you just slowly gain elevation. And then you get to camp at 10,000 feet. So it, it was a different experience, a lot more pleasant. <laughs> yeah, you're, your body's yeah. getting a chance to make some red blood cells. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tell you, when I was in the Air Force, I was in Virginia. And I got sent to South America, to Ecuador. And we were doing um, humanitarian trips up in the Andes. So I went from sea level to 14,000 feet. I was like, I had, I talking about headache. It took me at least three or four days. And I was like, am I going to die? <laughs> because this is horrible. And uh, I understand exactly what you take Diamox and different stuff like that. But it's, it is, it's, it's a real problem, um, altitude sickness. But wow. So did you have any... Um, things that you felt like training wise that went really well, or maybe some other things that you felt like you could have done differently? Um, training wise, in terms of being, being fit for the trail, mm -hmm. I, I was really happy with everything I did. I, I, I wanted to make sure I, I knew what it was like to do 20, 25 miles a day through really rough terrain, carrying my pack before I hit the trail. Cause that's what I hadn't done before. I'd done a lot of walking. I had done the um, walk around Manhattan the, there's a little organization in New York City called the Shore Walkers, and you can sign up there and walk 32 miles around the rim of Manhattan. It's pretty cool. And that's the longest I'd ever walked before, but there was no pack. It was all flat. The weather was fine. My feet were still killing me at the end, but I had done that. I knew what it was like to walk 30 miles. I didn't know what it was like to carry a pack. I didn't know what it was like to do the elevation. So my training was going up to the woods near New York City, about an hour, hour and a half drive. I can get up to Harriman State Park. I can get out to the Appalachian Trail. And I hiked most of the AT in, in New York State and New Jersey. Wow. And, uh, and my longest day was 25 miles with all my PCT gear. 
So I was pr that, that had me pretty much prepared physically for the PCT. And that's how I could start at 20 miles a day, right from day one. Some people, um, their idea is to get in shape on the trail. So they'll do no more than 10 miles. Maybe they'll just do seven, eight miles the first day out of, out of Campo and then just slowly increase the time. And they figure, well, by the time I get to this area, Sierra, I'll be in shape for those mountains. And by the time I get to Northern California, I'll be doing 25, 30 miles a day like everybody else is. Wow. I guess that's one way to do it. <laughs> so did you find that some people are successful doing that or do they feel like some people were, well, I, they, some people did it. I don't know if they, if you asked them, if they said, was that the way you smart. would do it? Again? Mm -hmm. Was it smart? Would you do it that way again? Because a lot of people drop out really early from injury. Mm. I just wanted to know what to expect. I knew I was having some foot issues just from my, from my um, training hikes. And I did mm -hmm. have trouble with plantar fasciitis or, Achilles tendonitis, whatever whatever it was, I had really bad stabbing pain in my heels oh. during the um, the first four or five hundred miles of the trail. Only the first four or five hundred miles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're again, that's shoes, right? So what type of shoes did you find were helpful, or yeah. do you feel like you might have had something different? Or I ended up. I I may be different than most people, but I ended up with uh, maximum cushion shoes. I mean, later on the trail, I ended up with Hoka's that they almost look like clown shoes. They have this gigantic heel stack on them. Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. But for me, that's what did it in terms of getting rid of the, the foot pain. And there's, and it's not just the specific pain that was in the heel, but general foot pain. I suffered a lot of general foot pain in the beginning. At the end of the day, my feet were screaming. Sometimes I, I, I sometimes just couldn't sleep at night because I'd lay down and you'd figure, okay, you're off your feet now, everything's okay, but they would throb for an hour and I couldn't even fall asleep. So that was something I had to deal with that. There was no training I did before the trail that fixed that. I just, I just, I, I was close to quitting, but I, it, early on, like 400 miles, like Mount Baden Powell going up that I, I'll never forget that that day was so painful in my heels, but I made it up and I just, I said, I wasn't going to quit. Mm -hmm. I just kept experimenting with different, different shoes. Mm. So you would go into town and maybe go to a shoe store and, and try something differently, or did you have something sent to you in different places? Uh, well, I started the big uh, discussion and controversy with through hikers is hiking boots or trail runners or something else, just running shoes. Mm -hmm. And vast majority go with trail runners. I started with hiking boots, but they were not traditional hiking boots. They were light hiking boots, Hoka hiking boots. They don't even make them anymore, but it had that really crazy cushion on them. And they were also waterproof and <clears throat> they had some ankle support. So that's what I started with. And they were on the heavy side, which is not good, but it was as comfortable as I could get for my feet. And then after 300 something miles by Big Bear, my feet were still hurting. So I was like, I got to try something different. And I just went down to, I just got off the trail, Ubered off the trail and went down to REI and tried some um, trail running shoes. Mm. And so then you stuck with those for a bit and then you ended up for a running. little while. Yeah. For a little while. I, I learned the difference between the breathable shoes and, you know, one that's waterproof and one that's breathable. And, and by and large, almost everybody goes with breathable, really lightweight shoes in the desert just for, com for comfort in terms of the heat. Mm -hmm. It didn't bother me so much that my feet were hot. But if your feet, your feet are going to sweat if they, if, they're not, if they can't air out, and mm -hmm. then you get bad blisters. I didn't have really bad blister problems, but that was a, a massive issue for the majority of people. And, and in choosing a shoe, you have to keep that in mind. Right. Uh, and, then I, and then I switched back to another pair of the Hoka boots when I got to the Sierra. Mm. And I'm glad I did because I know people took their, their trail runners through the Sierra. But there was so much snow. It would have been fine if it was dirt trail. Right. That's what I would have done. But going through so much snow, and I had cold, freezing feet so many times, um, I'm, I was glad I had those boots. And then I switched to trail runners, the Hoka trail runners, towards the end. And that, that was the end of my foot problems then for the, 
for the rest of the trail. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Cause trail runners are great. Even I have some that are waterproof cause I'm running through obviously wet muddy trails. Yeah. <laughs> we have, to, we, we have rule. You have to take shoes off at the door cause it is mud filled, but yeah. it's so much fun. But as far as, um, that's really interesting. So what type of clothing did you bring? Like, okay. So you're, so people, you have to understand you're not showering or bathing <laughs> for, for days day. on end. <laughs> these towns must just be used to it, I guess. But oh. <laughs> that's another big conversation on the trails. The, the stinky hiker. <laughs> so, t- what type of clothing did you bring? I mean, did you wash your clothes when you were going in these towns? I mean, there's lots of stuff yeah. going on here. Yeah, yeah, you do. You have to wash. Well, you don't have to. Some people don't. There's there's different levels of hygiene among different hikers. Let's put it that way. I mean, a very broad <laughs> range. There. I mean, if you do a survey, you know, what was the longest time you went without a shower? You're gonna hear a pretty <laughs> pretty big range. Um, they, yeah. they they say that you can tell when a t- tell somebody's a uh, whether they're a day hiker or a through hiker because you can smell the, the day hiker f- from twenty yards away. You smell the you know, soap or you know or laundry detergent stuff, and compared to the through hikers, a little right. bit different order. Right. But um, yeah. So if you're three, four, five, six days in between towns, you do your laundry in town. You go to the laundromat. You do your laundry. You get your shower, and it's just heavenly you, you get filthy absolutely filthy on a trail there's just nothing you can do about it unless you want to jump in lake or creek and even that you have to be a little conscientious because there's a discussion about um you don't want to get any soap in the water there's leave no trace principles that all the hikers are supposed to follow and you don't i mean you can jump in the creek you can jump in the lake i saw lots of people go swimming but um not you don't go in there and bathe with soap that's a, right. a taboo and you know, people who are really strict about it, they argue that, well, you have all that sunscreen and bug repellent on you, so you shouldn't even go in the, in the creeks and the, the lakes. I didn't stop people from, from swimming, but right. so there's, there's, there's that too. So you, you, that's how you stay as clean as you can, but you're, you just get absolutely filthy. And some days are, yeah, I remember pitching uh, the tent once the third day in the desert, and it was the most perfect campsite because it was um, shielded from the horrible wind this is 40, I don't know how fast the wind's 40, 50 miles. I don't know what it was. It was blowing, it would have, it was blowing people's tents over. And uh, I found the spot shielded from the wind by all the bushes, but it was in this extremely fine, dark brown dirt. And I don't know what kind of dirt it was, but it got into and over everything. I was just filthy. I, I was surprised that my trail name didn't become Pigpen after that. <laughs> so I walked into the town and it was just dirt. I didn't even know how much dirt I had all over my face. It was everywhere. It was like in the, it was like in the creases of my fingerprints and wouldn't come out. It was just, and that's what the whole, you're going to, you're going to be really dirty if you want to through hike. <laughs> so now let's talk about that. So you're pitching tents. And so obviously it's not just humans in nature, there's other animals. So tell us about some of your interactions that you, you guys got to check out his, his Instagram. Cause there's some really interesting pictures, but you got to share some of your animal stories. <laughs> well, the first is the day one rattlesnakes. Exactly. Yeah. That was my welcome to the PCT. And I'd almost <laughs> made it to Lake Morena. Well, actually within the first few miles, somebody had left a written note on the trail. that said rattlesnake ahead. That was kind of nice of them to warn. It would have been better if they would have put the time and the date and everything. So, <laughs> you know, it was right up there. I could have been there from the day before, but, um, when I got out almost up to the first, the first town spot, it's about 20 miles into the trail, right before town, there was a rattlesnake and he was stretched out across the middle of the trail that they like that. Cause they like to sun themselves on the trail and they don't like to move cause they're, they're sunbathing. They don't want to move and you have to you know, toss a 
stick or a rock, if there's no place to go around, and a lot of places there's not, sometimes this is just single track carved into the edge of a hill somewhere. And uh, eventually he, he, he slithered away. And in the desert, there was the, the horned toads. I saw a lot of them. Somebody told me they were they're injured, but they look like little dinosaurs. Those yeah, they're, they grew up in New Mexico. They're all over the place. Yeah, mm. we saw them all over the place. They didn't seem endangered to me. And uh, I <laughs> no. saw a rosy, a rosy bull, which was the biggest snake I saw on the trail. Again, right in the middle of the trail, just slithering right through the trail. Oh, I almost stepped on another rattlesnake that really, really, that shook me up because he was literally coiled and sitting right on the edge of the trail. Just an inch, inches could have just jumped out and, and oh my gosh that kind of that freaked me out one day um wow. almost everybody sees multiple rattlesnakes then when you get up in the sierra the the, the critter the critter that everybody sees is the marmots oh they're they're so funny looking um, <laughs> and they look really cute but they will steal your food in a heartbeat so you never <laughs> not even for not even for a minute you, you don't leave your food unattended when the marmots are they're, they're like little thieves <laughs> they are yeah and they're, they're all a little chubby too you can tell that they've they're they're getting hands out, hand out somehow. Cause well, they, they yeah. know where the food is. They're not yeah. dumb. Right. So, wow. So, okay. So you're what I'm curious. So like, what if someone does get bitten by a rattlesnake? Do you have cell reception that entire way? No, you don't, you don't. But what most people do is they carry a spot or some kind of GPS rescue device. I carried, I, I carried one too. Just okay. for, for an emergency. There's, there's very spotty cell phone connection all through the whole trail. Okay. The reason you can use your phone for navigation is because the app, the app functions without cell phone service and it just uses GPS to tell you your location. Ah, gotcha. So then, wow. All right. So did you hear of anyone getting bit by rattlesnakes? Uh, rattles, not this year, no. But I, I've heard it's very, very rare. It's very rare. Usually, usually it happens when somebody messes with the snake. Somebody tries to pick a snake up. I just saw on my Instagram feed the other day, I was just scrolling back through some of the PCT um, pictures from last year. And there was a picture of a guy picking a, a snake up and he's like, I'm the snake whisperer or something like that. I'm like, well, that's not too smart. Unless you're, you're that professional guy, you know, like a Steve Irwin or, you know. Who still died. Which died who died anyways. From yeah. animal it's, it's, wound. It's mainly, it's mainly just watch your step. Don't put your your hands anywhere where you can't see like around, you know, around, around a rock, if you can avoid, avoid that. And when you mm -hmm. see them, leave them alone. I mean, sometimes you have to get them out of your way. If there's no way around them, you'll have to like toss a stick or something. A few sticks or a few rocks. They, sometimes they don't want to move, but yeah. you don't mess with them. They don't mess with you. Yeah. I only saw a kid, uh, a rattlesnake once growing up and it was when I was a kid and we were camping up in the mountains in um, Arizona, <clears throat> but it, it, you quickly back up and get the heck out of Dodge. But yeah, yeah it's pretty crazy. And I did a lot of crazy stuff growing up. So, but that, that is fascinating. So now were there other animals that you ran into? Yeah. Two, two bears. Mo most people saw more bears than I did, but I saw two, um, one of them in Northern California and one of them way, way up at the, just, just South of the Canadian border. And they both bolted so fast I, I could not even believe how fast they, they, they talk about how fast bears can run. You know, there's that joke about you don't have to outrun the bear, just the other guy who's hiking with you. And you're right, okay. it's true. Because they're going to, they are fast. But these California black bears, that's a, always a discussion on the trail is the, are the bears going to bother you? Are they going to hurt you? Are they going to eat you or whatever? And mostly they run away. And that's yeah. the, the experience of most people. But they want your food too. 
And mm -hmm. so that's a whole big deal on the whole trail is how you store your food. And it's the biggest deal in the Sierra and especially in Yosemite where it's absolutely required to have the bear canister. Mm -hmm. And if you go through, you know, all of the, um, all the feeds and the Facebook pages of people who hiked, you're going to hear all kinds of stories about encounters with them. Um, bears trying to get people's food or if they didn't protect their food the bear made off with the food they can't get inside the bear canisters though right okay so that bear canister is a, a food storage device yes basically yeah. and so tell us was there one evening <laughs> of some oh, sounds <laughs> yeah so i see i followed your whole instagram the yeah. whole time so i'm like i'm like i know the story can you share that please yeah uh well i thought it was a bear encounter i i still don't know for sure because i cowered in my tent the whole time so somebody later I mean, what am I going to do? Like hop out of the tent and just try to get a bear selfie, you know? Or, yeah. Or <laughs> hey, rest, you were lifting upper, upper body. Rest, <laughs> I don't think that would have ended up, up too well. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't go out and somebody suggested, you know, it might've been a deer, which is possible, which is possible, but it was so, I was in my tent and I was just falling asleep and, and I hear this, this digging out, out by my really vigorous digging outside of my uh, tent. And then I hear this running away. And then I hear running back, heavy, heavy, heavy footsteps. Maybe it was a deer, but I, the only thing I could think of is that this is a bear, like right outside my tent. Deer don't dig. <laughs> and people have told me they do, but... I don't know. Digging. When they I lived digging. in Colorado, I never saw a, a deer dig. I had deer in my backyard every day. Yeah. So, yeah. But anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. And came back and I hear the digging again, which I later found out. I saw these large holes dug out at the at the bottom of a tree in a couple different spots and then i hear these heavy footsteps run away and then and then coming back and i hear this grunting grunting and heavy breathing well, and you know, i was sure at the time it was a bear i just i just yeah, i never and, actually saw it but right yeah, right wow. outside my tent in a place where bears had been seen before this was near um sierra city just Deer don't of. grunt <laughs> they <laughs> make this like high pitch sound yeah. <laughs> um i'm serious i've seen deer and elk and all through literally up and down in Colorado. I lived in Western Colorado, little rural town, deer run amok. And no, that was definitely a, so, a well that would have been bear encounter number three. <laughs> I just didn't I just can't didn't wasn't able to visually confirm it. That was definitely Audit, a bear. Auditorily uh, confirmed <laughs> so there was evidence. There was something going on outside my tent. Then when I woke up the next morning you could see uh, and deer are a little skittish. I mean they don't come up and unless you're feeding them or something, but so I had one come up to me in Washington. Did uh, you? Here, right up around. He, he was just hanging out around the outskirts of the campsite and then came mm. up later after I got into my tent. He was right outside my tent. Um, I woke up the next morning and one of my trekking poles was about 10 feet away. He, he apparently had walked Trying to chew on it? Something. <laughs> He's like, hmm, that looks like something I'll chomp on. So. Yeah, maybe it's the sweat, or the sweat or something on it. I don't know. What about the other two bear encounters you had? What were those about? I'm not sure. You have to refresh. You said, you said that was Bear Encounter. Oh, the two, three. three. Yeah, the two. Oh, okay. Well, the one was up near Mount Shasta. Okay. Um, he he was right in the middle of the trail. Uh, that was the first. That was the first one that I saw, and he was enjoying the berries along the side of the trail. And as soon as he saw me, he looked up, bolted. I it was wow. so fast I couldn't even get my camera out. Wow. And then the other one was all the way, all the way up in the North Cascades, just south of the Canadian border. And same thing. He was on the trail munching on berries saw me and then just bolted bolted through the woods wow. and when i saw that bear now when you're that far up you know right by the border of canada there was a sign the very very last um 
trailhead before you go up to Canada's Hearts Pass. And there's a sign there that says, if you see any grizzly bears, please notify the ranger. I'm like, grizzly bears? I didn't know there's grizzly bears on the PCT. I thought there was just these, you know, these sissy black bears that run away, you know, and you just got to protect your food. And grizzly bears, that kind of freaked me out a little bit. And <laughs> um, it was a black bear I saw. I'm almost positive. I said, it, was, it was so quick. It was just a blur. And, yeah. and I've been told there haven't been any uh, grizzly bear sightings up there, even just south of the Canadian border. But I I couldn't help notice that sign that was kind of in the back of my head. A lot of people worry about the bears when they're, they've never gone up and hiked the PCT before and, and all of their friends and family are, you're going to get eaten by a bear. But these are, it's California black bears that everybody, everybody sees on the, at least on the PCT. I don't know about the CDT. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The, well, I tell you, we were hiking, um, in, uh, Yellowstone. Were you in Montana? Were you still in Wyoming? I remember we saw, um, so my family and I, we saw, a, a big grizzly. <laughs> oh my goodness. They are so big <laughs> and they are not bothered by people. They just keep doing their thing. That's been my experience in the smaller bears, bears will run away, but that, and, and we would see bison as well. <clears throat> and people think there's a buffalo, but they think they're benign. These suckers are huge, but they kill people every year. These yeah. very large animals. Um, yeah. And, you know, I saw people standing by them, trying to, the little kids taking pictures, like, do you understand in a moment you can be gone? Um, but I was like, it's crazy. But yeah, those grizzlies, that's, if I'd have saw that, I'd have pretty sure I'd have died right there. <laughs> <laughs> like off to heaven I go. So, but the grizzly was, was over a, um, yeah, was on the highway and you could see him, but he was right there, but people were stopping and taking pictures. I was like, okay, yeah. stay in the car, take a picture, keep going. <laughs> so everyone wants to know. It's interesting. The questions friends and family ask you before you go on a through hike when they know mm-hmm. they don't know nothing about it and they don't know anything about bears. And I didn't really before I had to research it, but they're all mm-hmm. like, are you carrying a gun? Are you, are you taking bear spray? And it's like, mm-hmm. no, it's a specific crest trail. You don't, you don't need it. But mm-hmm. you're asked that all the time. Aren't you worried about the bears, the bears, mm-hmm. the bears? Yeah. Well, people who, you know, a lot of us are urban dwellers, right? And so we haven't had experience even in, to go out on in, in any type of nature hike is like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a smart thing to be prepared and read about. And I know you did a lot of preparation from that standpoint. Yeah. So now as far as um, documenting and, um, you know, cause there's so much that can happen and thoughts that are going through your mind. How did you document that? Because I mean, that alone, if you're doing written word, plus you're exhausted, what did you find that was helpful to document your journey? Yeah. I've seen all these people who did the blogs and now I'm very impressed that they did it. And even more impressed at people who video blogged and there's a good handful of fantastic, really fun to watch video blogs of, of through hikers. And I watched the people who did 2016 and did that. There was a few of them that I I don't, it was like a, what do they call it? A Netflix binge, you know, yeah. <laughs> a PCT YouTube binge. Yeah. They had a video every day, some of them, and, or at least they did a video for each section. Like they got to town, they got, when they got to town, they did their video thing. And I was really inspired by a lot of those. And I was really, really informed too. So now I look back at that. I'm like, how did they do that? How, Cause it was, it was hard to write anything. I would write notes at the end of every day in my, in the text of my uh, iPhone. And sometimes along the trail, there's something I wanted to remember. I'd jot it down. I would just stop or I'd be at a break getting food and that stuff. Because there's things I wanted to remember and jot down and details I, I wasn't sure if I'd remember. And I took a lot of pictures. Mm-hmm. And I just used Instagram because that was the easiest, fastest, easiest to do. I was never an Instagram person, which is funny because in fitness, Instagram is the biggest thing. I mean, Instagram is fitness. It's people taking 
you know, gym pictures and flex pictures, you know, it's flex Friday. It's a big Mm -hmm. deal. And so, you know, and, and it's, it's, and it's a nice tool to use on the trail too, but that was just taking pictures, a small handful of selfies. I'm not a big selfie person, but I was just taking as many pictures as I could. I I must've taken about 3000 pictures while I was out there. And then I uploaded, tried to upload some of the the better, better ones. Every time I got into town and I got a cell signal again, or if I got a, if I got a signal, that's pretty much how I documented it. And I kept telling myself, well, you know, I'll, I'll write, I could write a book about this because this is, this is some interesting stuff that's been going on. There's, yeah. some, there's some stories and I, and I made enough um, notes to, to remember those things. And then because I didn't finish the whole trail, because it was such a terrible fire season and so much of the trail was closed, I decided, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and finish in 2018 and I'll, I'll, I'll put the book together then. So you're right. going to go back. Tell us about this. So tell us so where you ended and why exactly what was happening. Because, I, again, I remember reading about what your thoughts were and what was going, mm-hmm. so what was going on in Northern California and Oregon at that time. Well, it, it turned out to be not only one of the biggest snow years in the history of PCT. It was one of the worst wildfire years. And it really got bad um, up in Northern California. And my timing could not have possibly been worse. There are some people that kind of, th- you could say, threaded the needle, and they just kind of got through. There's all kinds of stories I read, I, I read about on, on, on blogs and Facebook and saw on Instagram. Like, we just made it. The day that they closed the trail, like right behind us, the Rangers, and we just got through. And I was the exact opposite. Everything was closing right in front of me the whole way. Mm-hmm. And the first time I knew there was a closure is when I got to Mount Shasta, which is way, way up in, in um, Northern California. I mean, I don't know what mile that was. 1300 1400 I mean it, you're well over you're well over halfway past the halfway mark and I knew the trail was closed ahead and I knew that there was no way there was no reroute there was no alternate sometimes the Pacific Crest Trail Association will say okay the PCT has been closed from a wildfire but we've established this this side trail you can take and you can maintain that um, that coveted footpath that that mm-hmm. that footpath from from Mexico to Canada that everybody wants. This way you don't have to skip a section. But in this case, there was no way around. There was no way around at all. And I knew I knew then I wouldn't be able to hike the whole PCT from, from south to north in a continuous path. Um, there were some people that tried and that meant they had to hike like 100 miles of the highway, hmm. which just, that's not the experience that I, that I wanted. Well, so. and dangerous, right? I mean, I oh, mean, yeah. More afraid of people hitting me in a car than a bear on a trail. Even even in the mountain roads, there's no shoulder. It was really sketchy. I walked. There was a fire closure from years ago um, down near Mount San Jacinto, heading up into um, uh, what's the town there? Uh, not Wrightwood. Well, anyways, San Jacinto had a had a closure, and you had to walk around it. And, and mm. hiking up into the town, there was a winding mountain road that was going up to um, 5,000 feet elevation, you know, just kind of clinging along the side of the mountain, zigzagging, and there's no shoulder. So you're going around a sharp corner, and that was probably as dangerous as crossing some of the creeks in the Sierra, if you're not paying attention. I mean, there's nowhere to go if a car, if there's two cars coming by. So yeah, I didn't want anything to do with that. So I I, I ended up skipping, and then it got worse. They closed another section uh, um, north of or the Syed Valley, which is just south of the Oregon border. So I couldn't finish that very, very last section, 100-mile section or so of California, and I didn't get to cross the California-Oregon border. I ended up taking car car service up to Ashland. Okay. And I got then, to Ashland. Yeah, then, there's, yeah. then I got the news of more fires. Crater Lake closed. Um, you, oh. could, you could walk around. There was a walk around, and it meant that you had to walk the road all the way around the the, the east rim so you're hiking like an extra 70 miles out of, out of the way and the whole from northern california 
up the whole trip was just dodging one fire after another and paying attention to the news and every time you got into town you go on the pacific crest trail app and see oh i'm sorry but this section is closed the mount jefferson wilderness closed um and then i got the port i, I ended up skipping because that it was almost like two-thirds of oregon was closed and it's almost like not worth trying to to just kind of zigzag around it so i took a train up to portland and I got to Portland and met a friend who was going to take me to Cascade Locks, where the, the famous Bridge of the Gods is. This, is. this is another milestone point. It's across another state line, famous from the movie Wild and everything. And that exact same day, my friend was ready to drive me to Cascade Locks. The Eagle Creek fire broke out, which was horrible because that was set by a kid with fireworks. And it just burned a huge swath of, of forest there in, on the Columbia River Gorge. And... So I couldn't even do I couldn't even do that, and that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to do what everybody else did: is skip all the way up to the Canadian border, and then start hiking south, and then just kind of see how far I can go, and you know, connect my my footsteps back where I left off. Mm-hmm. And they said there's no fires up there, and I got up there, and there was a fire up there at Hearts Pass. They were getting ready to close, and um, fortunately, all I had to do was hike through. 30 miles up to the Canadian border and back, 60 miles of smoke, of lung choking smoke and the fire was about 10 miles away and that was that was basically just the, the whole story of that last section of the pct was just dodging fires and breathing smoke and Jeez. yeah it was a rough year for fires so what are you going to do this year what is your plan to continue the the journey i want to finish i want to go back i i made it through about uh 1800 and something miles about 1850 miles the trails wow. 2650 miles long so i have all of oregon and the southern part of oregon uh, southern part of Washington to finish. So it's about 800 wow. miles. I mean, that should take me a good five weeks, maybe six weeks, some, uh, probably at least five weeks, depending on what pace I go at. But I'm looking forward to that. I'll get to cross two state lines, hopefully mm-hmm. get to Crater Lake. Um, oh, one of the most, yeah. yeah, one of the most beautiful sections of the whole trail that everybody puts as one of their favorites. If not their favorite, it's their up in the top two with the Sierra is the Goat Rocks Wilderness. Mm. And that's in Washington, where you're just walking on this knife's edge ridge with Mount Rainier just looming in the distance and several other these, you know, snow-capped volcanoes. And it's just supposed to be amazing. So I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to that. Wow. So when are you going to plan on uh, starting your journey? I haven't set the exact date yet, but as soon as um, snow's melted out in southern Oregon, um, the last I heard it's the opposite of last year, at least in the Sierra. I don't know about Oregon, but the Sierras have a very, very low snowpack right now. So people mm-hmm. going this year are going to have a really different experience up in the, in the Sierra. But I know that whole Crater Lake area gets really socked in with snow. Mm-hmm. If you go too early in June, you're going through a lot of snow. So it's probably going to be July and early August. Mm. But uh, I'll just keep, um, keep abreast of the weather, watch the weather reports. And it's flexible for me because I'm starting – uh, near the Oregon border mm-hmm. for, for other people. When you start is a big deal because the permit availability, they just, mm-hmm. all the permits were gone in like a day for April. People who want to start at the Mexican border in April, they were just gone really fast for me. Really? I haven't figured it out yet. And I don't need to worry about it because um, it's just flexible. When, if you're, when you're not through hiking the whole trail from the Mexican border, it's really easy to get a permit. So you're saying you have to get a permit to actually hike the trail. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of sections where you need a backcountry permit um, to be allowed to camp and the, there's an organization called the Pacific Crest Trail Organization. It's a, it's a multi-agency um, arrangement where you get one permit and you get to hike the whole trail with only one or two tiny exceptions. Like North Cascades National Park requires you to get a permit if you want to sleep in the park, if you want to hmm. camp 
park. But okay. aside from that, you have this one permit that lets you hike the whole trail. But oh. if you want to do a big section of trail, like 400 miles or 500 miles or longer, you need the, the, the through hiking per permit. So I have to get the through hiking per permit uh, once again. Wow. Very cool. So is there anything that you're going to pack differently or add to your regimen? I was pretty happy with my gear. I would love for my gear to have been lighter. And I know exactly what I can swap out to get lighter. I can swap out. I had an air mattress, which was just pure heaven. And it just weighed, it weighed so much. And I know I can use a foam, one of those foam, um, collapsible foam pads. That'll save me some weight, but it's pros and cons. It's not as comfortable. It's a little bit bulky. I can get a smaller air mattress, which is narrow. And since I'm a side sleeper, tosser, turner, I'll be falling off of it all night. So it's kind of like a trade-off between weight and comfort. And I was mm. pretty happy with my gear. I'm, I'm really tempted to, to try a, a tent that's ultra ultra lightweight and then but it's got no then it's got no um poles it's not freestanding and you got to make sure you take it down and you have to find a campsite where you can stake it down you can save a lot of weight that way um i could probably get away with a lighter a lighter sleeping bag but uh, i'm pretty happy if i have a 15 to 16 pound base weight i don't need to be one of those ultra light people that's got eight nine pounds on their on their back it would be nice it would make life easier but (laughs) i'm pretty happy with my gear yeah wow so you're going to keep up the weight training i'm assuming this time as well yeah, it might be a, a it might be hard in spots. I did I did inve- investigate the whole trail. I'm last sure you did. <laughs> you know, honestly, there's there a gym in Bend, and I know there's gyms in Portland because I trained there last year. That's that's quite a bit off the trail. It's whether mm-hmm. there's a it, I can do it for sure. It's just a matter of convenience and how far I want to go off the trail. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a much much bigger time window. Like there's no rush really to to finish 800 mile section. So if I want to, I can take my sweet time and go into town and stay for two, three days. I can get off the trail. I can take a 30 mile drive off the trail. So if I want to keep up a a pretty steady lifting schedule, it won't be that hard. That's nice. Wow, that is incredible. So is there anything you feel like we missed? Sorry about that. No, I don't don't think so. You've you've asked me all the questions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, these are all the questions I was formulating as you were driving through or walking through. I was like, huh. This is really interesting. Got to make sure to ask that with the follow-up. So we'll have to do this again when you're done with your Oregon, Washington. Yeah, maybe even in person because I live in Washington now. So. Yeah, and then it's a matter of what's next. <laughs> what would be next after this? Is there some other enormous trail that you want to take on? I would love on? to do the Triple Crown. I'd love to do them all. It's I'm, I have mixed feelings about being unplugged and away from business and away from everything for five months. Hmm. So I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what the difference is like that I'm just out there for, say, five weeks um, mm-hmm. this year. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's shorter long-distance trails. The Colorado Trail is what, that, what, that's 400 miles? There's an Arizona Trail that's three or 400 miles? Yeah, you're talking about um, east to west in Colorado? I think it's north to south, but I'm not sure. North I know it goes through the mountains. It's, most, mm-hmm. it's mostly at elevation. I know that. I know it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a bike. There's also um, – the bordered border for biking and different. It's okay. amazing. Yeah. Colorado is incredible. It's 14ers. There's you know, like 50, I think there's 56 14ers. And, you know, people try to do those in a lifetime bucket. Some try to do it in a summer. Yeah. We, we did several, but it was, it's they're They're fun. It's an amazing place. Um, something, something like that. But yeah, there's something, something I forget to ask about your 50 miler that you have coming up that you're going to. Yeah. Well, yeah, when people say 50 miles, they usually think of ultra. It's not an ultra technique. Well, I mean, some people would say it's an ultra, but there's no running. It's a walk. It's a walk. But still, yeah. it's 50 this miles. Is, this is the, it's the Kennedy walk. Okay. And I found out about that because the first long walk I did, it was an urban walk, was the, the shore walkers around Manhattan. I was 32 miles. And then mm-hmm. from there, somehow I got linked over to this other walk, which is uh, Maryland over to Harpers Ferry 
Virginia. And it's the original 50 mile walk that Bobby Kennedy did. And this was a thing. This was a thing back in the sixties. There was a fitness craze that was promoted by the Kennedys and it was a national thing. It was on the cover of life magazine. And, um, you know, after John F. Kennedy was, after Kennedy was gone, it kind of, the whole thing died off because 50 miles is a pretty ambitious fitness, you know, public mm-hmm. fitness push. I think it was just to bring awareness to become more fit, not necessarily for everybody to do 50 miles, but doing 50 miles became a thing. And so now there's a walk. The original walk has been an event ever since. And I believe they also have a 50 mile marathon in the Kennedy name or ultra, ultra marathon, but this is the walk. Wow. And I've never done 50 miles by foot before. I've done the longest I've ever done by foot is 32 miles. Yeah. So it, so, it's a step above. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would, that would be, a, a, how long do you think that's going to take you? There's a time is, limit. It's in a day. Oh, it's, it's in a, one day. Yeah. There's a time limit. It's going to, most people are going to do it in 16 or 17 hours. I think. Wow. You're not, you wow. don't walk, you don't run it at all. It's just a walk. Just, so, but, yeah. so that's a good clip though. I mean, that is um, a brisk walk without very many stops to get it done in a day. Right. Absolutely. Goodness. That's really cool though. Awesome. Well, we'll see how that goes and yeah. how much fun that is. You may be coming, I don't know, maybe you will be coming. You think you'll ever run? You used to like run, right? When you were younger? I, run, um, I, I did a little bit, but I wasn't very good at it. I run a little bit now. Mm-hmm. Lifting is my main thing. I run a little bit now. Let's just say, let's just say I dabble and I'm a fan of the sport of ultra running and I'm a fan of through hiking and, and I really appreciate endurance athletes. So whether or not I ever become one officially or, you know, really, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have to see how that goes. And, and again, it's a, it's a learning experience to see how, how the weight training balances with endurance work. Because there, there, there comes a point where one goes up and, one, and the other one has to go down. Or you, there's, there's, a, there's a fine balancing line. Right. Place. You have to, you know, and if you want to get really good at something, there's you have to set a priority you know you can right. do it for fun always of course i think everybody should do a little bit for fun i think endurance athletes should lift mm-hmm. i think lifters shouldn't be afraid of cardio there's so many people in the bodybuilding community that are downright anti-cardio it's, mm-hmm. i actually think it's not cool because <laughs> they're because they're, they're they're downright critical whereas wow if, if you do a small if your main thing is lifting and bodybuilding you do a small amount of cardio it only helps it's i mean it's for well, health for conditioning right that'll for those reasons alone but it doesn't interfere it only it only um helps out with your lifting and then, then when the the frequency and duration intensity gets up to a certain point then it starts to interfere with what you're doing so it's all a matter sure. of what you like to do what your goals are but i think i like i think that they can fit together in well and you're in and you're exactly right. Like they should, right? So if you have endurance, like I like to do long runs or longer runs, if you don't, you know, exercise your legs and then also upper body, you're going to be imbalanced. And it is, it's all about your, it's overall health, right? You really want to yeah. promote overall health and longevity. So very cool. Well, Mr. Tomadu, that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just so, I'm just so impressed by people who take on so you know, amazing challenges that others would be, you know, they quiver in their boots to even think about, but it's just really cool to see people do it. And then even if there's challenges, they overcome it and, and use their, you know, ingenuity to, can, to figure it out and go back, you know, and finish this up and then share it with the rest of us. That's really awesome. It was so cool. And it was fun. Yeah. It was fun. <laughs> and it's, it's memories that last a lifetime. And um, I look back on it and I just, the, the one word I keep using is adventure. I'm like, what an adventure that was. Yeah, totally an adventure. Would you ever feel like you would want to have a go with a group of individuals versus by yourself next time? Or do you like that? I don't think so. No, I mean, I met a lot of cool people and mm-hmm. but I, I was, I was like doing it solo. That's cool. I can wow. go at my pace and. 
Not to worry about when I start when I want, stop when I want, get off the trail when I want, (laughs) go lift if I want, even though nobody else would want to do that. (laughs) Well, maybe there is someone out there. I just haven't met them yet, (laughs) but there's always the individual, the unique one. So thank you so much. That was so awesome. And I'm sure everyone's going to really enjoy this and uh, we'll definitely be posting this shortly later this evening. So it'll be a lot of fun. Cool. Well, let me just uh, say thank you everybody for listening. All right.